this is Tom from the Gas Giants podcast. I'm here to tell you about today's episode. It is part one of a two-part series in which we interview the drummer from the Glaswegian teen pop sensation called Delamitri from the 1980s. We were pals with them back in the day, more or less. You'll hear more about that in the interview. And Gav will give a proper Gas Giants introduction shortly. But first, we're going to listen to a demo tape, very briefly, just an excerpt from, a demo tape made in 1981. This is not exactly representative of what Delamitri ended up sounding like, but it seems like the best place to insert this archival recording. children of all ages welcome to the gas giants podcast where we've got a very very special show for you tonight we have in the virtual house the photographer all-round genius the creator of many an amazing meal and most importantly ex-delimitri drummer paul tiagi for a round of drinks cheers paul cheers good evening now most importantly, I don't know if that really... How Do you accept that? Most importantly, that's the most important thing you've done in your life? Uh, being the drummer of Delmetri? Mm. Uh, at the time. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Which kind of well, goes to the heart of one of my big questions, is that that was then and this is now. Indeed. And uh, um, uh, 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 you, 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 you're wondering what I'm asking me what I'm doing now. I could do that. Certainly, I do want to ask that. But um, I, uh, I've, one I've of the things... Yeah. No, let's do that now. Yeah, first. Well, um, yeah. I, I've, I've been professional photographer um, for most of the time based down in London since um, the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. But I was, in, uh, I, I was, I was the drummer for Delamitri from uh, about 1981 to 1989. Yeah. So that's a, a good chunk of... Uh, my young life and uh, at the time i would certainly say for for myself and all the rest of the band or the the band members uh, or of the lineup at that time uh, it certainly was a, a, a the most important thing in our life uh, none of us had 
uh, other jobs or careers to go to. And um, it was quite an, an adventure and quite an escapade and also a, an incredible learning experience. Uh, when people talk about the university of life, uh, this was certainly like uh, going on a, on a very, very intensive, um, uh, I would say, MA or PhD course um, in whatever <laughs> subjects uh, you covered when you were in the music business. So for me, for me, I would say the whole period um, during the 80s, uh, being part of that group, being part of that company um, um, was um, w w was very much, uh, you know, I had nothing else on. And uh, we, we were we were incredibly passionate about it uh, and half knackered and half drunk most of the time, but very passionate about it. Um, and during uh, that time, you said you said starting in 1981. Yeah. So yeah. you were you were with, and as I understood it, the thing started at Jordan Hill School, but you were roped in from Bears Den. Yeah. Um, Delamitri was started by three chaps who were in the fifth year in uh, Jordan Hill Secondary School in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, and I guess they started at school experimenting with guitars and tape recorders as young uh, young young people often did during that time. <laughs> Nobody knew a drummer, um, but it just so happened that I delivered newspapers to um, one of the guitarists' house. Uh, I was the newspaper boy. Uh -huh. um, so uh, I used to put the newspapers through the door of his parents' house, and as a joke, he used to wait for me and put them back out of the letterbox. Uh, whereupon I would I would go back, pick up the newspaper, and put it back through the letterbox. And then, as I left and went down the driveway, it would come back out. And this what a this fun game, little game you guys play together. <laughs> Doesn't that until, sound lovely? Until one day, one day that uh, chap, the guitarist was actually sitting on the roof of the house when I arrived and he said something rather tauntingly cheeky to me um, as I as I delivered the newspaper. So I knocked on the door and his father came out and I said, there's someone sitting on the roof of your house. Um, and uh, he got into quite a lot of trouble for that, actually. Good. <laughs> so the next time I came to deliver a newspaper, the moment, he, he pulled the door open and confronted me um, and then, of course, we got chatting and he understood that I was a drummer because I used to wear this like a T-shirt, you know, I'm a drummer. Um, That's what he, makes you a drummer after all. Down. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't catch that. Sorry, it's, it's, having, it's having those T-shirts that makes you a drummer, you know. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so... Um, so he, he we, we got talking and they needed a drummer. So I came down and... Um, um, the the lineup at that time um, had the original singer who's still in the band. That's Justin Curry, yeah. and uh, uh, two two of his friends from school, Donald Bentley and James Scobie. Um, and uh, I arrived down there and thought I'd, I'd impress them because they were nice, clean, middle class boys by chain smoking and drinking uh, drinking uh, bottles of Glasgow ginger endlessly. 
Mm. Uh, and they were very impressed by this. So um, there was no audition or anything. So it worked, yeah. <laughs> I became the drummer. So, um, all, so to become a drummer in a pop group in Glasgow in the 1980s involved a T-shirt, Glasgow Ginger, which I guess is Iron Brew. Um, uh, limeade, I think. Okay. And, yeah, and cigarettes. Limeade, green stuff. Mm. Oh, a surprise, surprise. Hmm. Well, this was also the time when uh, basically owning the equipment could get you into a band. Yes, yes. <laughs> if yeah. you you know you had like a microphone or or something, you would like, that would you'd be in sooner or later. So, in 1981, <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, how old were you? Uh, in 1981, I I believe I I had just turned 16. Right. Yeah. 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 So this is a story of the like the perfect adolescent years from mid-teens to mid-twenties, right? Uh, I would say so, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. When I look back, I mean, it's quite incredible, really, um, that anything happened, um, and, uh, uh, and, and whatever did happen was quite extraordinary, really. Mm. Um, well, talk me through the, the early years, because, um, I mean, all I know really is the... You know, is the pop music that that Delamitri is known for. Um, but what was it like to be? So you say you were in a band from 1981 until 1985, when Delamitri became a known thing. Let's say throughout the country and beyond. Yeah. Um, but there was there was during those years before that there was stuff going on. What was that? Um. Uh, uh, well, um, we we were at school. Uh, we were all at high school um, uh, at the beginning, and um, so we would um, meet um, in a rehearsal facility provided by the local authority um, for 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 kids uh, like us. Um, cheap rehearsal facility, yeah. and um, rehearse every Sunday all day. Yes. Um, and uh, mm. Wednesday was this, Sorry, was this the Washington Street Art Center? Uh, the Washington Street Art Center in the center of Glasgow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is quite funny because of course I, I was playing every Friday night in the chamber orchestra that rehearsed in the Washington Street Art Center. I mean it was an old school basically down down by the Clyde. And uh, and it had all kinds. Of, it had a, a theatre group going on there. It had um, it had an orchestra. It had art exhibitions. And in the old janitor's flat downstairs, there was space for for bands to to each to rent a room. And uh, the, the 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 flat was in the basement of the building, uh, around the back. Um, and uh, you you rented the room for ten pounds a week. And the room had a cupboard where you could lock your gear up. So mm. it was a kind of um, it was a kind of den, um, and it was absolutely brilliant because this is um, the way to do it. You know, you've got to you've yeah. got to subsidise the arts if you want this stuff to flourish, and it doesn't cost a city with so much decrepit uh, housing and infrastructure as Glasgow did at that time. It doesn't cost them much to provide this stuff and no. make it available. It and the building, the building is currently empty. And and uh, in a fair state of dereliction, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but there there are quite a number of groups, actors, musicians, uh, 
all kinds of people in the arts who have who have got their start there in the 80s have mm. gone on to do things of note so i reckon a very very special place and uh, this doesn't exist in glasgow anymore um and it, it really should uh, bring back bring, bring back the Glasgow Arts Centre. I see, yeah. mm. very yeah. very very unique. Yeah, I, um, well, uh, Gavin and I both, as diehard communists, have have often bemoaned mm. the um, the the lack of subsidies for this kind of thing. Because I mean, if you've yeah. got, and, and especially if you're a diehard communist, then you want your working class to be living in hovels and you know stacked on top of each other, living so close to each other, you couldn't even practice an electric guitar unplugged without your neighbors complaining about the noise. So under those conditions, obviously you need to provide, if you're going to have any chance of the arts flourishing in Glasgow, then you're going to have to provide uh, mm. some spaces where people can go and practice their instruments. Mm. May I also just add, um, at that time, um, I would say the establishment, the general establishment, that is the schools, teachers, um, uh, the establishment we came up against anyway, parents, mm. uh, were all against us making music or doing yes. music. Yes, of course. But that's that's cool. that's generational <clears throat> that's generational um yeah. divide. That's that's normal. Because the music that you want to do is the music that's going to upset your parents. That's that's normal. All generations should do that. I'm not sure that's yeah. true now, but that's just a sign of um, social decline. Hmm. Yeah. I don't, do, 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 is Paul, in, um, is he struggling with my um, my deadpan sarcasm here? <laughs> I'm not struggling. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, for, for us, it's perfectly obvious that yeah. the younger generation is constitutionally required to scandalize yeah. the older generation with whatever that in music and arts mm. they're into. Right. That's yeah. that sign of a healthy environment. And if they're not, then so obviously your parents didn't like it. You know, I, I kind of I kind of I kind of get get what you're saying. But actually, um, um I, I, I don't think we, we were making a noise or being rebellious or doing anything like that. We were just being really, really creative and doing something of our own accord. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the teaching establishment at the time uh, was more oriented towards um, activities, say, for instance, musical activities where, um, where a kid that age would get some kind of certificate, um, which would help them graduate through mm -hmm. high school. Yeah. Uh, or, or for instance, parents would be concerned and worried uh, that uh, whoever's spending their entire Sunday and Wednesday night um, at the, some mysterious little room in the basement of an arts centre is actually studying for their uh, final exams. Mm -hmm. And um, and also the noise we were making um, was completely inaccessible and probably horrific horrific to anyone who listened to normal pop music so nobody really liked what we were doing or understood what we were doing um and but we liked doing it and we just spent a lot of time um down there in that rehearsal room doing that i mean it was a bit like um the metaphor would be a bit like i mean because we were we, we weren't very good musicians we didn't really know what we were doing 
we were just trying to see how we sounded together and how it would all fit together. There was no kind of sense of, well, we're going to be a funk band or a rock band or a punk band. It was just sort of, let's see what happens. So it's a bit like um, if you got, you know, four guys with uh, sledgehammers uh, um, with a piece of sheet metal and just told them to batter the sheet metal until a sculpture came out. Well, I can accept that up to a point. But, I mean, I also don't really believe that none of you had ever seen Top of the Pops. <laughs> I mean, everybody, everybody exists within a yeah. cultural context. Yeah. So that we then were, leads to another question: Is like, what were you all actually listening to back then that wasn't I, yourselves? I watched Top of the Pops, but I I had to pretend that I didn't. Well, we did because, too, yeah. Because the general idea was that that, um, and I'm I'm referring to my notes here um, because it was quite bizarre. Um, the mantra of the band was no sing-along choruses, no sentimental melodies, no dance floor tracks, no guitar solos, no keyboards. So what we were doing was what was left. <laughs> That's pretty <Okay>. good. <laughs> it's, it's, yes, That's it's, it's very good. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah, it's, isn't it? <laughs> You know, it, it's yes. So, in a sense, you're communists too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all about a, you know, it's all about the prohibitions. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a manifesto to nail to the church door if right, I ever heard right. one. Yeah. Yes. How many theses was that? <laughs> Five theses of of, of Delamitri. <laughs> Five beatitudes of Delamitri. Yeah. <laughs> So what were well, you all listening to back then? Yeah, well, although, although you were although you were pretending not to listen to and watch Top of the Pops. Um, I think uh, I think I think uh, the singer Justin was very very influenced by the kind of politics of John Lydon, if you could say John John Lydon, uh, Johnny Rotten mm -hmm. politics, and he was he was really into the kind of uh, alternative, challenging uh, idea of, uh, you know, not uh, not trying to pander to a pop audience. And um, so it was mainly, I think, from his side, it was mainly that kind of uh, punk ideology, if you could say there was a punk ideology. Um, and I kind of got that. I got carried through with that. I quite liked it. Um I thought it, I thought I thought it was a very, very cool thing to follow through. Um, I secretly uh, would listen to all kinds of pop music and uh, um, through um, um, Gavin Hill, who I knew at the time, uh, I would listen even to some jazz. But uh, I would never admit that I'd heard this stuff or been influenced by it. So I, I would quietly, with my drumming, try to um, introduce some kind of idea of structure to the music or some kind of beat or some kind of rhythm. All right, let me, let me put this another way then. Back then, most people I knew at least had a, a fledgling record collection that they were willing to spend yeah. some pocket money on. Yeah. So what did you spend your pocket money on? I, I didn't really have any. And, you had a paper uh, route, though, so you got money from that. Yeah, yeah he bought drums. Oh, right. <laughs> Fair what enough. happened was I, I, I had two paper rounds, and then a round on Saturday, 
selling fresh, wet cream to people door to door. Mm -hmm. And I would amass about four or five pounds from all this activity per week, mm -hmm. then head down to um, a shop in central Glasgow, an old uh, music shop called, strangely enough, The Drum Shop. I would go on with my five pounds and or four or five pounds and I would kind of hang around looking pathetic um, and get chatting with the owner, um, at which point he, after a while he would get fed up of me and he'd, he'd say, you know, what can I do for you? So I say, well, I've got four or five pounds. Can you have you got a drum for me? So he'd go up into the loft and find some old junk that he'd had up there for years and years and years and bring it down. Mm. And if I liked the look of it, I would buy it. It would be, a, you know, a, an old military snare drum or something. And I would haul it back to um, my parents' house, take it into the loft, um, because my father uh, forbade me to play drums. Um, so I, um, all my activities were hidden by the shroud of the loft in the house. And then I, I would attack whatever um, drum had come my way with tools and convert it into something that could be a component in my drum kit. Uh -huh. This by by this method, after about a year, I amassed a drum kit that actually looked mm. a little bit like a drum kit. And that was that was in place by the time uh, you were uh, assaulted with returning newspapers and 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 glib remarks from a rooftop. Not really. Um, not really, no. Um, so, but uh, but there's a much more important question. That's just this: I have to ask, why? What made you spend your pocket money going to the drum shop buying yeah. junk drums? Um, for me, um, there, there was there, there there's when I look back on it, there was nothing really, nothing really, for, nothing else for me. Um, I. Um, uh, I, I really didn't fit in with anyone. Um, I, I'm a mixed race uh, person. My father's Indian, and um, uh, the area where we lived uh, felt incredibly oppressive to me. Mm. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I was um, race, racially abused all the time, but it just felt like there was a, a, a sort of backdrop of that going on. Um, and mm. uh, when I was growing up, I genuinely felt that there was no place in Scotland or or anywhere around for someone like me. A young person might say, oh, you know, my dad's an accountant, so my dad earns a lot of money and and we have a nice life, so I might be an accountant or, um, you know, something like that. But for me, it genuinely felt like there was nothing um, out there. Um, and when... I started meeting lads who had an interest in playing the guitar or songs or anything like that. I kind of gravitated towards it and they, they were always very accepting of me. Yeah. Um, whereas the other crowds, you know, inevitably there might have been um, some kind of um, uh, aggressively uh, racist slur at me yeah. or... or mm. Yeah. I couldn't get involved in sports. I, 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 I you know, so it was, um, it, it, it was a strange um, kind of feeling. I, I think maybe I invented it uh, a little bit. Um, I don't think it was as harsh as I, I make out, but it definitely influenced it. And I, I influenced me. And I felt like I was genuinely 
alone and had no um, no connection whatsoever with the school, with the society that I lived in, um, apart from these kids who played guitar uh, or, uh, you know, wanted to sing or whatever. And I could go up and say, oh, can I come to your, uh, right. can I play in your punk band? Uh, and they go, yeah, yeah, you, you, so, you're at it. So was that the same school you're uh, that Gavin was at? Yes. Right. So you're yes. both at Bearsden High High School, or whatever. Yeah. Academy. Uh, Bearsden Academy yeah. for young gentle folk. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The other <laughs> side. Of, the other side of the uh, of the band that Gavin and I were in together was from another academy, Shun Shawlands. But anyway. Um, yeah. So th- yes, this is a curious thing about musicians, isn't it? They are mm. pretty weird, and uh, they can be not always, but uh, oftentimes they are pretty weird, and and they can they can be a, a sort of refuge. Yeah. Uh, for 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 you know for people who are having that outsider feeling, yeah, yeah, yeah. you sort of create your own little micro society with its own rules yeah. or your own gang. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, I, I guess it's a very very special thing, yeah. uh, especially if you're doing it independently. Uh, you know, w- w- when the, there are no kind of uh, grown adults organising it for you or funding you. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we uh, just to just to lighten things a bit? Do you think the statute of limitations has passed on that uh, that drum from the boys' brigade? <laughs> I, I, I was constantly dismembering ex boys' brigade drums. Mm. Yeah, there was there was one in particular. There was one one guy. I mean, now it can be revealed. There was one guy at our school who um, he's probably something in local government now. I don't know, but um, he and I were running a, a a scam at the time where he would actually steal cigarettes from the shop where he did his paper round, and uh, he'd bring them into school, and then I would fence them because he didn't want people to know that he was doing it. Yeah. And uh, the problem being that uh, the sort of you know your silk cut or your B and H or whatever was always up on a, a quite high shelf, whereas you know Balkan Sobranis or Gitanes or something like that were always just the right height for uh, for for the uh, for the the paper bag. Yeah. And so I'd end up having to having to you know convince somebody to smoke bright pink cocktail cigarettes or something. <laughs> But <laughs> but uh, but he did turn up with a with a, a drum that he'd lifted from the boys' brigade. I remember Paul dismantling it and respraying it, respraying over the emblem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a lot of respraying going on as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I inhaled a lot of uh, a lot of car paint during my time. Do you know, yeah. Gavin? I, this isn't really a, so much a Paul thing, but uh, I was just thinking over the time since our last conversation that mm. the reason why the instrumentation in jazz has been what it is mm. must have to do with the same thing. That's instruments that were available to kids in school, yeah. band. Yeah. You know, yeah. And <laughs> so they were, they were easy to get. I, I'm yeah, not quite and, sure and also that they were clarinets in jazz, but apart from that, it makes sense. Yeah. Also, the fact that I mean, if you've ever been in a room with a saxophone, you know that it is it is a band instrument because it's just so much louder. Yes. So you can play it in a room where there's no amplification. Yes. You know. Yeah. So you were at this stage uh, actually this kind of experimental ensemble. 
and then I think you played a, a few gigs and then did made a demo tape, didn't you? I, I think the demo tape, um, the the, the de- demo tapes were made um, very regularly by most bands um, if they wanted to get gigs. Yes, it was necessary. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in, in order to get a gig, you needed to go and 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 give your demo tape around yep. the venues. Mm. If they obviously, if they thought it was good enough, that if they listened to, it. Yeah. Or, or 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 to a journalist or to a magazine or anyone who might be interested in listening to your music. Uh-huh. One one of the first things that was um, was was you know we set about doing was was making a demo tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this was done fairly regularly. I mean, I think it was done every you know eight, eight seven or eight months uh, over over a two or three year period. Mm-hmm. And and actually, uh, the, by doing this, you 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 can hear what you're doing and you can hone down what you're doing, um, mm-hmm. edit what you're doing, and you know move forward. Mm-hmm. So, so do you? How many? How many of those do you think you made before, let's say, early 1985? Quite a few. Um, I remember the first one we did because it was a revelation. Um, mm-hmm. Singer had bought um, a, a 1960s Revox reel-to-reel. Mm-hmm. So we made this demo tape by uh, overdubbing, bouncing yep. between tracks until mm-hmm. we built um uh what we needed um in terms of production and we we kind of followed with uh that process for uh, about two two and a half years by 1984 we had recorded a demo tape and sent it to the radio dj famous radio dj on radio one uh john peel Mm -hmm. the tape went uh the tape was sent to him by our singer who sent him a very apologetic letter about it. Um, basically, I hope you've got time to listen to our, you know, rubbish tape. We, we've tried hard to make a good tape, but it's not that good, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very uh, self-deprecating. Um, and uh, John Peel uh, must have loved it because he got back to the band immediately and offered us a Radio 1 session. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that involved... Um, uh, being funded to go down to London and record in the BBC studios at Maida Vale. Yeah. So we all headed down um, in a um, hired Ford Transit Mark II, which had clearly been used for transporting pig carcasses or something like that because the all the panelling inside was covered in meat grease. Uh, and we that, that was my first time going down to London and for all of us really we went down to London piled our gear into um this incredible studio which was like a spaceship yeah and uh the two producers who had been hired one of whom was Dale Griffin i think his name was Dale Griffin um he was the drummer from a band in the 70s called Mott the Hoople yeah. oh Mott the yeah of course yeah, yeah. Of course. He, he came, I mean, we piled in with all this crap gear that we had and my terrible drum kit, and they, 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 they were scratching their heads looking at my drum kit. They couldn't believe 
they actually took the rest of the band aside and they said, you've got to buy this guy a proper drum kit. Mm. But they set to the drum kit, which sounded awful, they set to it with gaffer tape and all all kinds of things. They spent about two hours and they, they managed to get a kind of really processed sound from it. But because they spent too, so much time, the session is eight hours, uh, we didn't really have much time in the session, so we we just rattled through the songs. Yeah. It's quite stressful, actually. It's not necessarily um, a bad way of doing it, though. No, not not a bad way of doing it. But I, I remember at the time, um, it, it it was almost uh, like we, we weren't even there. Uh, you know, you, there was no sense of here we are together playing together. It was just like, let's get this done. But actually... Um, Dale Griffin, the producer, um, got a quite quite a good sound and quite a good mix. And the show was broadcast, I think, early in 1984 on John Peel's show. And of course, we all stayed up. Um, we were all in our parents' houses. We all stayed up to listen to this. You know, it's a great thing to have your stuff played on the radio. And we just wondered what would happen. Yeah. yeah. I remember the first time it happened to me. It was the most exciting thing. Very exciting. Yeah. Anyway, John Peel played the first track and was completely amazed and, uh, you know, basically said on radio, that this, this is fantastic. What fantastic track. Uh, half an hour went by, he played the second track and he he said, this is unbelievable. I've never, I've never heard anything like this from a Glasgow band, this type of thing. Yeah. Played the third track and he said that this is my favourite band. And then he played the fourth track. He said, why can't all bands be like Della Beatry? which is a time when John Peel was enormously influential. Enormously yeah. influential, yes. yeah. So after that, um, the the music business started knocking on our door. And it was a sort of endless tirade of A&R people coming up from London. It, it, just, it just kind of went crazy, really. Mm. Um, it was kind of new for A&R people to, to actually leave London and go anywhere else at the time. So when you it? say knocking on your door, that's uh, they're literally show, they, people f- traveling from London uh, yeah, or just telephoning. Turn, they, yeah, they would turn up. They would turn up and you know book a hotel for two, three days and come see us in a rehearsal room or come to a gig. And um, I could definitely tell that none of the record companies really understood what the hell we were doing. I don't think we really understood what we were doing. Oh, that's allowed. You were little kids. It was a very inaccessible <laughs> kind of music. 
you know, they they book out hotel a t- hotel room for the weekend and come and see us. And yeah. um, to be quite honest, looking back on it, I think they were all pretty nonplussed by us. I, I don't think they understood what we were doing or why why we, how we were doing it or why um, the music was not accessible um, mm. as traditional pop music is accessible or, or or good for playing on the radio or anything like that. But I think because John Peel said it was good, they all they all bucked up and they, they you know their bosses said you better get up to Glasgow and go and have a look at this. Uh, you know there was a situation in Glasgow at that time where there were other bands coming up who mm. uh, were more accessible, who yeah. were being signed up by record companies uh, to make commercial albums. So I guess I guess they kind of come, had to come and do their job and come and see us and talk to us. Um, but I, I don't. I don't think anybody really quite, you know, got it. I, I don't think we really got it, to be quite honest. Um, yeah. We were just doing what we were doing, and 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 if people didn't like it, we kind of metaphorically put two fingers up and thought, well, we're just going to carry on doing what we're doing. So, yeah. in terms of your activities up to that time, up to that um, that trip to London to Maida Vale, um, mm. can you estimate roughly how many gigs you'd played? Uh, at that point? Well, probably about 10, 15. Oh, okay, yeah. and that was over a span of about mm-hmm. three years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, there were, you, were, you were in what was, I think, originally called the Cafe Vaudeville, later called the Wazika, quite a bit. You, you also used to do out of weird out-of-town dates, I seem to remember, uh, you going up to Aberdeen. Yeah. Well, the, 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 there was a kind of an, a, a network or a, or a set run of, of pubs and nightclubs that required bands to come and play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of promoters that, um, pro, you know, got bands to go and play there mm. um, and organised it all. Really, most of the gigs we did um, involved, you know, driving in a rented Mark II uh transit sitting on for instance up to dundee or aberdeen and playing in a nightclub or a pub where they would they would switch the disco off and say right here's the band now yeah you would play in the end and whoever whoever was in the sorry apologies i'm going to switch the phone off Hmm. I, I mean, you, you say 10. I seem to remember you playing more than that. Yeah, I mean, sort of like the, the, what I'm getting at is not so much the numbers, but it's sort of like the sense you you were talking about how you didn't really have a, a you as as you remember it, you didn't really uh, know what you were doing. And from the point of, if, if I'm imagining on the one extreme, here is a band that spends all its time basically just hanging out as, as friends, playing music together and sort of experimenting and, you know, just being together, that occasionally plays a gig and sell, see what we can get going. That's one thing. And another one, another extreme would be you're playing gigs all the time, you're going on the road, you're whatever. It wasn't quite that level. Yeah. Maybe a bit closer to the former. Um, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, what, uh, what stage did the first single arrive? The one that you actually did yourselves? Um, I, I've got it here. Um, Holding stuff up for the camera is nice, but we don't get no, to no, see no, it. No, 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 I'm talking about the one on before the, that. Uh, the podcast. Sense sickness. Yeah, that's 19, the one. There we go. Yeah. 1983. 
Yeah. That was 1983. Okay. I think it was late 1983. I have it here. Um, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I think um, we had a, a couple of friends uh, who wanted to start a record label mm-hmm. rather, rather on the same lines as, as the infamous, famous postcard records yes. in Glasgow. Yeah. And they called their record company No Strings Records. Yes. They they were friends of ours, and they wanted to um, they wanted to make a record with us, a single, um, and another band which was called Pop Gun. So of course we agreed. I mean they were entrepreneurs, and they funded um, the recording of this single. Um, the tracks on the single on the A side is uh, the track is called Sense Sickness. There was a thousand copies, but I, I, again, I don't think anyone really bought it, and it served a purpose in as much as we had a piece of product in our hand hmm. um, or getting gigs, really. Yes. I, I mean, small, small fun, like funny story uh, was that when that came out, I actually went into a record shop and I bought it. And I came out of the record shop, walking along the road, and who did I meet but a teacher from our school, who was the the old metalwork teacher, who I was I was quite fond of, and uh, and I, I said to him, I said, oh yeah, how you doing? Started talking to him, and I said, look at this, I've just bought this. This is Paul Tiagi. He's in a band, and he's just made this record. And he looked at this record very slowly, and then looked back at me and said, is he on drugs? <laughs> What a nice teacher. What a nice teacher that that would be his first concern. (laughs) And the the other thing that you mentioned about the um, about the demo tapes is that this uh, this tells me that by the time you went to uh, to to Made Avail that first time, uh, you're already quite experienced with multi track recording. Well, you know, which is which a particular way of constructing music. Uh, yeah, to an extent. Um, I mean, it was mainly the singer, uh, Justin Curry, who he would use multi-tracking to layer up vocals. He, he's an incredible singer. And yeah. he was experimenting with multi-tracking vocals. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we weren't really multi-tracking guitars or, 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 or doing any effects on, 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 on anything else. Um yeah, but but it's still it's still different from the way like a a, a jazz 
ensemble will go to a studio with their songs all ready to go and in they can cut an album in an afternoon by yeah. just just playing together and they just play mm. it all at once yeah that's yeah. What, yeah that's what i mean you know it's that, yeah. that kind of difference but the yeah. but the, it's a it's a mindset towards a, a way that music can be layered and, and constructed in yeah. a studio yeah yeah can yeah. i can i say that this is uh this is one of the things that actually always attracted me to the band apart from paul's sinuous drumming was um the uh just the fact that justin was one of those very i mean, he has an amazing voice absolutely amazing and also, he had that thing that I recognised from artists like Norma Winston, that he thinks of his voice as an instrument, rather than just something for, for conveying words. And I, I remember listening to, to sort of one or two tracks where he was just messing about, where he'd... Uh, where he'd uh, been you know messing around with multi-tracking at home and i realized that he, he had this this very clear concept of his voice as as a musical instrument very much so yeah well anyway onwards with the, with the story this is mm. obviously the thing that interests me the most is what the hell was it like being courted by record <laughs> labels and and then finally drawn into a contract. Not particularly exciting. Um, I, I think um, it, it was great to get some attention. And I, I, I don't really finish my story about the gigs, but basically yeah. when, when we were out doing gigs, uh, we'd turn up uh, and there'd be a poster up and, and they, they put the disco off in the club uh, because you know, here's the band playing now and, and everyone would go to the bar and no one would listen. I mean, nobody really liked our music. It was a it was a real vibe killer um, at the time, and and the record company A and R. So we you know we'd um, we travel up to Dundee or Aberdeen and go go on stage at one o'clock in the morning to an empty dance floor and play our set and get paid our fifty quid or whatever and drive all the way back to Glasgow again. Uh, so mo most of the gigs that we did were a bit like that. Um, you never I mean, had a feeling that you were building up a following. No way, no, no, mm -hmm. quite the opposite. Um, we did self-promote, um, and Gavin was talking about Cafe Warzika, mm -hmm. which yeah. in, which was in Glasgow at Charing Cross, and the owner of Cafe Warzika liked the idea of having bands on in the cafe. It was a very small cafe, mm -hmm. holds about 20, 30 people. And so we came up with the idea of having a residency there and doing one gig a week there, sort of from eight o'clock in the evening till half past nine, uh, a kind of sensible hour. And that was really nice. And that worked. That We kind of built up a bit of a following through that. But the traditional gig scene was a complete disaster for us. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm glad we did it because it's good to go out and play. But I don't think we ever had an audience um, uh, my memory of it all, and I think other members of the band who are, who are still going will, will also concur, that everyone hated us in Glasgow. All the promoters didn't like us, and, and none of the record companies really understood what we were about or what we were doing at all. And it was only because John Peel championed us that they they they, they took notice. Uh, mm. I mean, I'm convinced most of the time that record companies don't know anything about music anyway, which is a cool thing to say. Uh, and well, they can't afford to. 
Yeah, exactly. They listen you know, to so. they listen to other people who do know mu- about music, and then they they, mm. they, they they then they get their money out, and they 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 spin the dice on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you like a band, buy the record. Don't buy the band. Righto. Um, but um, uh, the record companies would be coming up, sort of from uh, you know from that John Peel session time. And uh, what would be involved would be they come to the rehearsal room, hang around for half an hour, make a few jokes, and then invite us over to the hotel. We'd all go over to the hotel, whichever hotel they were staying in in Glasgow, and we'd make sure we got fed and got enough drinks. Uh, in those days, it was the Thatcher days. She hadn't uh, um, uh, the Inland Revenue had um, had not cut the entertaining allowance for. Uh, companies like record companies so these guys would come up these a and men would come up to glasgow and install themselves in the nicest hotel and invite us over and we'd have a kind of whole binge drinking session with them in the bar and then dinner um we couldn't afford any of that and we we never had any of those experiences so it, it was a, it was great fun uh being kind of wined and dined um None of them were really saying anything that made sense to us. I think <laughs> after a while, after a while, you know, the realization was that we weren't the kind of band that 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 they wanted to sign, and they were just coming up because um, they were doing their job. Their and bosses they were, told them to, yeah. Really, mm. really, really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did it? Uh, why did you end up with uh, with a sort of? Uh, independence uh sort of uh offshoot of chrysalis um chrysalis records at the time had some very mainstream bands um mm. they had um a band called go west mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. had uh, spandau Bally. yep okay uh, they had had blondie oh yeah right. of course yeah yep um, and and all of their acts, let's say, were you know they were chart, they were going for the charts. Uh-huh. Uh, and Chrysalis had someone at Chrysalis had um, someone in A and R, the head maybe the head of A and R had realised that um, there was something going on in the music business that they weren't a part of. Mm. That was a kind of um, indie label. Uh, side to their business and they decided what they wanted to do was start a kind of rough trade style mm-hmm. league within chrysalis yeah and they hired an AR man called peter lawton to set it up and make it happen and find some bands mm-hmm. so peter lawton the AR man within chrysalis set up a sub label within the company called big star um mm-hmm. And he came up to Glasgow a few times. He came to see us. And um, I, I think actually he, he genuinely liked us and especially liked Justin Curry. I noticed later on there was a particular type of um, guy in the music business that that, that liked Delamitri and they were sort of um, ex-public schoolboys. Uh, or whatever i don't know but um so he he came up and he said right i I really want to sign the band let's do it and um so we thought yeah okay and we talked about money and there was a bit of a toing and froing going on 
I guess it was decided in Chrysalis that they were going to bring us down to London and get us to work with a few producers prior to doing anything just to see how it would work out. So Chrysalis, or Big Star under Peter Lawton, got us working down in London with um, a guitarist called Tom Verlaine. Who just died. Who just passed off, yeah. Passed yeah. away. Yeah. Uh, Tom, Tom had been in, in a kind of indie band in the States called Television. Yeah. Um, yeah. And ha- I guess had decided uh, after the breakup of that band that he was going to become a producer and uh, had turned up in London uh, and was staying in a residential recording studio and had made it known to all the record companies that he would like to produce a band. So um, Peter Lawton, the A&R chap, he put us together with uh, Tom Verlaine hmm. uh, in a couple of studios down in London. I, I believe one of the studios was... Uh, Pink Floyd's, it was Pink Floyd's studio where they recorded Animals, a bizarre place. So we went in working with Tom Tom Verlaine, and um, that was an interesting experience. When you say uh, residential, I, how long were you there? Well, we, we were staying in the famous Columbia Hotel um, on Bayswater Road, the famous okay. Columbia Rock and Roll Hotel, mm-hmm. um, probably for about two weeks while we were working on that. Okay. Um, Tom Verlaine um, had installed himself in the residential suite of uh, the Townhouse Studios on Goldhawk Road. Townhouse Studios was a a, a mega famous recording studio in the 80s. Loads of big albums were done there. And they had uh, residential rooms for musicians or producers who were were staying in the neighbourhood while they were working. So I guess the way... Tom was working it was that he would get, say, for instance, in our case, Chrysalis to pay for two weeks of his keep staying there. And then he would get work with another band after that and get their record company to pay for his you know, residence hmm. and kind of have a, a, a jolly old time working and building up a presence in London. I mean, this was unbeknown to me at the time how these things are done. I naively thought, oh, Tom Verlaine's flying over from New York to work with us because of that. <laughs> uh, but I think, again, it was just, you know, suck it and see, try recording with a few bands and see what happens. And the record companies were doing that. It was an experimental thing. So they put us in Pink Floyd's um, old studio and um, and uh, and unfortunately that was a, that was a bit of a disaster. Uh, Tom Verlaine couldn't make sense of us at all. Um, uh, American bands traditionally have this um, way they do their music and they set up. The drums do a particular thing. The rhythm guitar does a particular thing. Mm. The guitar does a particular thing. The bass does a particular thing. And we we had nothing of that at all. Uh, we had no virtuoso uh, chops. We had nothing. We just had what we were evolving and he he couldn't make sense of it all, and he spent a whole week chopping uh, multi-track tapes in Pink Floyd's studio, um, editing and re-editing and re-editing, uh, re-editing all the takes that we had done. Did he? And, did, and, did at any point during that process did you play as a band for him to listen to you listening to play? 
as a band. No, we were straight in the studio with him. But but but, but still, you can you yeah. can you've got enough space uh, where the four musicians yeah. can set up and play. This is well, what it sounds like. This is what it's like on, when we sat, yeah. when we play. Yeah. Later on, I realised that um, a, a lot of American record producers don't really get down with bands. They they come into the record. The band does the recording in the recording studio with the engineers. And they come in, they say, oh, it's a bit out of tune or this, that, or the next thing, mm. or change this, and then the band does another take. British record producers at that time, I mean, I think some British, uh, that's called an executive record producer. Uh, British record producers are somewhat more hands-on, and they 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 apply like a, a, an additional member of the band or an additional songwriter or... Uh, you know, if you're doing, say, for instance, a drum take, uh, it would be normal for the producer to stand in front of the drum kit while you're doing a take and and direct you, um, and you know, get really muck in and get involved. But um, this was our first experience of working with American record producers, and I guess they they work akin to the way the American music business works. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for instance, you know. Quincy Jones, who's who everybody knows is, mm-hmm. is one of the greatest American record producers, he works like that. He relies on all his session musicians and all the talented people around him and he delegates. Yeah. Um, yeah, but maybe he, he does a little bit. But, but he I, I but think, he can he can instruct them on what to do. Right? I mean he's um, he's a musician who can yeah. who can tell everybody exactly what to do. Yeah, but, well I haven't worked with I haven't worked with Quincy Jones, but from from what I've seen subsequently or recently um, and heard uh, about the way he works is he, he hires the top session musicians who are all great songwriters, great arrangers, um, you know, in- incredible creative people in their own right. And if what they're doing together isn't correct, he will say, that's not right, do this or do that. But generally, from what I've heard, he lets them get on with it. He, he hires people he really trusts and works with all the time, yeah. and mm-hmm. relies on them to come up with the main meat. But of that doesn't. Record. But that doesn't describe what you would imagine a recording session for television to have been like, does it? Mm, no, they sound more like a, you know, a, a band like yours, like you were in. Well, that, well that's that's what <clears> I, that's what I think um, our Ian Arman piece of Lawton thought at the time was that television are a kind of indie band. They've got a raw sound. Mm. Um, they've got a strong guitar sound, and Delamitri have guitars, of course. Yeah. But we'll get Tom mm-hmm. Verlain in, and he'll, he'll you know, whip them into shape. And, and, well, inspire. and, and television have a very, un, a very uh, innovative use of guitars in their compositions. Yeah. A yeah, very yeah. unusual and weird one and, and kind of wonderful. So yeah. and and also uh you know something like Marquee Moon sounds like they've just gone into the studio and played it. Yes. Tom would tell us all kinds of stories about how how he would be pulling his hair out over their drummer. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, you know all kinds of torturous tales in the studio. Um he was a stickler for timekeeping. Um mm. and and uh you know it, it, I, I really, uh, to be quite honest, I really wasn't a, a television fan. But you know, you, you, if if somebody's paying for you to go and record with someone who's famous, then you, you mm. go and, especially if you're going into an incredible recording studio. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
But the, the the sessions were a bit of a disaster because we we certainly were not virtual virtuals or music musicians. We didn't really know where we were or what we were really doing. We just had our kind of sound that we did, yeah. and we needed, I guess, somebody to really come in intuitively and work with the band and say, look, you know, guitarist number one, don't play at this time. Guitarist number one, play at this time. Don't play so many notes. Um, mm. You know, drummer, don't play that. Play this. Um, bass player, we're going to get someone else to play bass or we're going to overdub the part um, in a particular way. So needed someone to come in very, very intuitively and sort it all out. The other thing um, that I'm picking up from the way you're describing this is that none of you went to the studio with an idea of what you wanted it to sound like coming. No, the, 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 I would say the entire um, activities of Delamitri really, up, up until after the first album, in, involved kind of, I would say, no real direction at all. Hmm. It's just, you know, here we all are, this is what we all do, uh, let, let's see what happens, yeah. um, which is a kind of interesting way to, you know, to be to be operating. But it was our way. Um, mm. and, and, and to be quite honest, most people just didn't get it and didn't think it was very good and wanted to just move on. Um, audiences would be alienated in gigs and... Um, if you give a demo tape, say to your parents or somebody you knew, they 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 go, oh, can't you make it a bit more accessible? Can't you make it a little bit more uh, like something they play on the radio? Or yeah. can't you? Uh, and then on the other hand, it, it wasn't deliberately avant garde either. It wasn't deliberately off the off the scale in another direction. It yes, wasn't. We, we know what that's like. To, yes. You know. I, <laughs> <laughs> You might even say, you might even say, you know, it was it was goodwill incompetence. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, or, or naivety. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it's a position of not being um, not being highly developed, being early in the process. Mm. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, I, I, when I look back, I, I wish I'd had lessons, and I wish I'd had um, more of a grounding in music, and I wish the other guys had as well, but. We didn't, and somehow um, we we celebrated that. Yeah, um, that, mm. that was that was the strength of it somehow. Well, it was also a, a very much a part of the punk ethos, which had been, yes. uh, as you said, had been had been uh, shaping at least some of you at that point. Mm. Yeah, it was it, it it was a it was a great thing to say that you didn't know how to play your instrument. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, there was it, it didn't just go go for music as well. The, I was always uh, very excited when I was a teenager about the idea of somebody just putting a frame around something and saying, "This is art." Yeah, yes. I can imagine what, you would be, Gavin. Was, you know, mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, that was kind of the opposite of a lot of the stuff that was going on in my life at the time. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I found that found that very exciting. And hence your interest in the KLF later. That was kind of their stick too. Maybe uh a bit of a stretch, Tom. But oh, sorry. This yeah. takes us too far afield. Ah yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. 
Tom Verlaine doesn't work out, what happens next? Um, yeah, we, we went back to Glasgow um, after that experience and just, it, it was it, it was disheartening, really. Um, mm. You know, it, it, it was the strangest thing to happen. I mean, to be in the studio for five or six days every day watching this guy with the engineer chopping up uh, multi-tracks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, incidentally, uh, just so sorry, because I saw you waving the, the single there in your hand. Uh, we forgot to mention that the single, which you put out um, yourselves and all the rest of it, that got sound single of the week, didn't it? I don't remember, but if it did, yeah. my God, that's a miracle. Yeah, it did. Yeah, because it sounds of the of the uh, of the three weekly newspapers that yes. came out dealing with music. Sounds was generally reckoned to be kind of the heavy metal one, who turned out, out to be a, a lovely chap. And Hugh mm. had started off as an engineer, I think, in the seventies in Trident Studios, and had cut various David Bowie albums and Stones albums and. He, he he kind of had a, a very, very old school hands-on approach to pr- producing and engineering. Um, and of course, at the time, we didn't know what, what really what engineering was. Uh, but we certainly learned from Hugh Jones. Mm. And he came in, he came into the rehearsal room and he had a good laugh about our performance and our music and didn't really say anything and was quite chilled out. So... We signed the deal and we agreed to work with him, do three tracks with him. Yeah. But he, he actually he actually heard you uh, play live before he. Well, he, he heard the, he heard the band play in the rehearsal room. That's important. Yeah. yeah, he may he may have come. We may have done a gig somewhere or other um, in London at that time. Okay. We were doing yeah. the in London. You had to kind of project to London with um, the producer Hugh Jones. The idea was you do a London gig and. Um, you would get some press coming along or other record companies coming along and, you know, the idea that the band is progressing. But um, he he came along and um, we signed the deal and he agreed to do three initial tracks with us. And it, it was just uh, extraordinary. Uh, he, 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 he came into the rehearsal room, he spent two weeks or maybe a week and a half with us in the rehearsal room, just going through all everything we were doing as individual musicians, uh-huh. uh, just working on every person, giving every person a lot of attention. And then we went into um, what became quite a famous studio in Glasgow called Park Lane. Yeah. It was a kind of bargain, as far as you know, international recording studios, because it was a kind of bargain bucket place. Yeah. They didn't have much gear. They had a, a tape recorder and a, a, a very basic mixing desk. I think Hugh was quite horrified by it um, because, you know, the, the the big recording studios, the famous ones, all have all kinds of incredible gadgets and gear. And um, this recording studio was very basic. Uh, but he set to and uh, he, he, he recorded us and... Um, pulled us through those three tracks. And uh, when the record company heard them, they said, right, okay, we'll we'll pay for the rest of the album. Um, so I think it was Christmas, just before Christmas 1984, we recorded the first three three tracks on that album. And then, uh, then we started again 
I think probably about March uh, and did the rest of it. Um, uh, all the backing tracks were recorded at Park Lane Studios in Glasgow. Um, and then we moved down to London um, to a studio owned by um, an artist called John Fox. Um, oh, yeah, with, with, with two X's. Yeah, John Fox. Mm. He had a studio in East London, so we moved in there and the album was mixed there and the vocals were done there. Uh, and so then 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 we had a we had an album and and a record label, which yeah. I'm holding up here. Um listeners mm-hmm. can't see it, but we can. Um which was <laughs> which was an extraordinary feat. Um and Justin Curry says Hugh Jones taught us what everything we know, and I think it's true. Mm-hmm. Um He's a very, very special person to work with. And he's worked with a lot of bands. I don't think he's ever had any major mainstream successes. I don't think he's worked with Phil Collins or anyone like that. But he's worked with a lot of... Um, oh, the Bunnymen. Echo and the Bunnymen. He's done uh, Echo yeah. and stuff like that. But what what, a, what an incredible person to work with. Um, almost like your, 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 your big brother and your dad... And your best friend rolled into one, looking after you in the studio, anticipating what issues you have, making you feel great. Um, you know, just he. We couldn't have made that record without him. And uh, mm. uh, and uh, you know, I I owe I owe, and I think the band owes um, a huge amount of gratitude to Hugh uh, for his patience and diligence on the record he was he was constantly fueled by um pils lager i don't know if you remember the uk pils lager yellow label mm, which one he drank pils lager from early in the morning till three o'clock in the morning all Yikes. day wow well holston holston pils yeah holston pils yeah holston diet pils yeah yeah and he always had a, a roll up in the corner of his uh-huh. mouth yeah. so whatever he was doing engineering or whatever he'd always have a roll up We've all, we've been talking for well over an hour now, um, and there's still a lot of interesting questions. Um, so we got yeah, to. I'm talking we gotta, too much. We got to. No, gotta, you're no, here to talk. That's <laughs> that's fine. Uh, that's it's the not the ratio of you talking that's the problem. Which we got to move you along. Um, mm. So the album, if I if I understand the 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 broad strokes of this story of Delamitri in the '80s, is the album didn't sell well enough, and and um, and Chrysalis kicked you out, but yeah, there that, was that's a... exactly exactly what happened. Uh, the album came out in the UK. I think it was really it was released in the US. Um, but um, we we had a famous meeting um, with a guy. I think his name was Nigel Slater, the head of Stuart Slater. That was his mm. name, the head of A and R. At uh, we got pulled in for a meeting with him towards the late summer of 1985 after the album had gone out and he he basically told us why can't you make music like go west <laughs> <laughs> and of course we we arrive at chrysalis and they've got all the artwork everywhere they've they had a big building in central london a, a massive townhouse that they'd taken over and it, it it was five stories of um spandau bali branding yes Place. Yeah, and um, they they just didn't get us at all. And, yeah. and we he sat and uh, 
uh, was very patronising, uh, and we we were quite aggressive with him. But isn't um, it curious though? Because listening back mm. to it now, that mm. that first album doesn't sound weird as far as eighties music is concerned, does it? No. Um, I, I, it just doesn't have it doesn't have the right kind of um, uh, rhythm tracks, choruses. Mm. Uh, guitar solos, um, re- yeah. recognizable chord structures. I don't believe uh, you. I don't. I don't believe you. There was uh, weird music being sold in the eight, in the mid eighties. There was so much weird music sold yeah. through that period from yeah. the late seventies to the mid eighties. It can't have been just that. It must have also been uh, a marketing problem. It mar- you know, just a failure of marketing yeah. to the, the right audience. The other, the other, how, how many tunes were there in three in the charts? Okay, the Stranglers had a big success with a tune in five, but there weren't too many tunes in three. Actually, are you talking about um, Golden Brown? Yeah, that's a that's a waltz. It's in three. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that, it is. That's a unique record for the Stranglers. Yeah. I mean, they they don't have a lot of. But that's in th- I, it's still it's not. I don't I don't believe it. Fucking fucking Laurie Anderson had a number two hit with Oh Superman in nineteen eighty two. Right, yeah, that was it goes on for her. eight minutes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not I a matter of weirdness that's the problem. I don't believe it. Well, radio One DJs wouldn't play it. Um, the, the 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 mainstream radio stations wouldn't play it. That's a big John deal. Peel like it. Um, John Peel wouldn't play it. Um, he, I think, John Peel figured that we we had actually sold out with it. Oh, interesting. Yes. We see that, that could do it. Yeah. That could explain everything because, you know, I mean, you, it only takes, it only takes John Peel or Andy Kershaw or something to make all the difference. I mean, take Ivor Cutler. How weird does it get? Yes. How Mm. weird does it get? Then Ivor Cutler sold, (laughs) sold an album pretty well, didn't he? And it was, and it was because of John Peel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, what was leveled also was uh, we we want something that sounds like the Smiths, and it doesn't sound like the Smiths. Oh, in the meantime, like of the course, <laughs> that's, you, a, that's you, absolute nonsense. It sounds enough. Like yeah, the but it, in the meantime, you went on tour with the Smiths. Um, actually, we 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 did gigs with the Smiths um, prior to recording this album. Okay. Ah, okay. Yeah. And uh, and um, the the Smiths. Smiths were a, a really nice guys, and I think they they liked to. Um, that was off the back of the John Peel session. Yeah, um, right. They liked to pick up bands they thought that, that that were interesting and have them on tour with them, rather than have the promoters choose their yep. their support uh-huh. bands. Yeah. So we went. We went. We did a kind of short support tour of Scotland with the Smiths. We also uh-huh. um, did um, quite a lot of supporting um, with um, Lloyd Cole and the Commotions yep. yeah. um, around the UK and around Europe as well. Mm. And you know, we could see watching Lloyd Cole and Commotions that they they were a band of sort of proper musicians and had sort of proper song structures, and uh, they they were aiming to get their songs on the radio and played to the public and you know people people would listen to their songs maybe once or twice and get it whereas people would listen to our songs and say i haven't a clue what the words are what's going on with the words there's too many words <laughs> or, uh. or the guitars are clashing with the words or you know yeah it, it, 
it was no. it was it was just a bit of a Frankenstein's monster. I mean, at um, this point, at this point, how much REM had you all listened to? Well, that's that was the other band that we were relating to was REM in the states, and um, uh, uh, um, there was sort of much talk about REM, and I, I would listen to REM, and I I, I actually thought um, REM REM are actually a fairly traditional American rock band. Perhaps mm-hmm. this is not uh, the right thing to say. They're a bit more left field than uh, you know the heavy heavy rock brigade but you know they're fairly traditional yeah uh, yeah you know, they, they write songs. in a fairly traditional format although they're singer they have an unusual but they, singer but they do mumble and um yeah. and, and 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 you know until uh you know a certain point the guitars were louder than the than the vocals um yeah and they well, had the, they had the wrong instruments you know you're not supposed to have a mandolin in a rock group no uh, well rem so rem became darlings of uh, college radio in the 80s yeah oh yeah um and and that's really what helped them break through and then as they progressed through their careers uh, their career they, they 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 their music became much much more poppy and accessible yes um and traditional um but yeah we did relate to rem and and we we our manager at the time uh decided that the thing to do was get this album promoted in america because we started getting fan mail um, from uh, young people in America who had sort of accidentally bought the record or had heard it on college radio yep. and were going crazy. Um, so we we asked the record company, um, we were also hoping the record company would give us some kind of tour support money so we could promote the record in America. But unfortunately, they refused. Yeah. And... Um, it, what what it came to with the record company was we basically said if you if you're not going to promote us or uh, allow us to do another album, let us go. Um, just let us go. Yeah. And and actually they did. They must have hated us that much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, at that point, what contract did you have? Did you have a multi-album contract or something? Or did yeah, you we have did. Some... Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. So they exercised Good. their option not to do another record with us. Yeah. Or uh, you know, put any more money into the group. Yeah. So there we were, stuck in 1986. And what are we going to do now? And go to America um, is what you did. That's what we did. Yeah. And that's where we leave Paul Tiagi and Delamitri embarking on a packet boat to the North American colonies, and we'll return in part two of this interview soon. Join us again for another gas giants. Thank you.